Welcome to this episode of The Patrick Coffin Show. Dr. E. Michael Jones is here to talk about usury and capitalism and the conflict there between and Catholic social teaching and Luzerianism and cryptocurrency, all that and much else besides. Remember MyPillow.com if you want not just pillows but sheets and slippers and dog pet stuff and um, towels, bathrobes. MyPillow.com, U.S. made products. We use them all the time here in Coffinland. Um, it's just they're just great products. Uh, I, I have my MyPillow that I throw as the last thing in my luggage. And if you use my name, Patrick, P-A-T-R-I-C-K, at the coupon checkout, you get the Patrick Coffin Show discount. So go to MyPillow.com, find out what I'm talking about, find out how big the deal is and why it's a great investment in your sleep, starting with the pillows at MyPillow.com. Once again, I connect with Dr. E. Michael Jones. He's the founding editor of uh, Culture Wars magazine, the author of a growing parcel of books, Degenerate Moderns, uh, the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and the, its Impact on World History. Uh, my gosh, A Living Machines, Dionysius Rising, Libido Dominandi, Logos Rising, ab about which I did a two-episode uh, interview with Dr. Jones. And now we're going to talk about his book, Barren Metal. It's another book that should come with a uh, forklift just to lift it <laughs> off the table. <laughs> it's called Barren Metal, A History of Capitalism and the Conflict Between Labor and Usury. Dr. Jones, good to see you. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be here. I thought we'd uh, uh, expand the aperture super wide and go back in history. I think I just mixed a metaphor there. But uh, talk about the origins of money. At, at what point in history, based on your res research, did the barter system get replaced with objects that are, that are uh, mutually believed to be of, of value? Does this, is this a pre-Egyptian thing, money? Um, nothing's pre-Egyptian. It goes back so far, like 3000 BC. But uh, basically, uh, we started off uh, with uh, people who uh, lived in areas where they had a surplus of something and a lack of just about everything else. Uh, pretty much the way nature is in a certain area, you get a lot of something, but then you don't get much of anything else. And so they would uh, engage in something called blind barter where basically they would go to a clearing or something like that. They put what they had to offer and then they kind of retreat into the bushes and kind of wait. And then another group would come up and they would put what they had to offer and then they would retreat. And then basically you would go and take what they had and they take what you had and that was barter and everybody was happy. Uh, but there's a problem here because if you have uh, 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 three bananas and the other person has a side of beef. How do you? How do you? How is this compatible? How do you get an equal uh, exchange? And so it was found at a certain point that uh, if you had a medium of exchange, it made uh, uh, economic exchange much simpler. So a medium of exchange would be something that everyone considered valuable, and that usually meant gold. Mm -hmm. So, uh, okay, now this is great. Now we don't have to figure out how many uh, bananas equals a side of beef. Uh, but now we have a, a, a slightly different problem. So uh, let's say right, you're going to give me an ounce of gold. That's not, no, much less than that. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, how do I know it's an ounce of gold? Simply because you tell me, well, I guess I have to bring scales. 
and then I have to assay the gold too, because you may be cheating me. You may have just sprayed gold paint on a piece of coal. So I have to assay the coal. Well, this, this is long and wearisome. And uh, this is uh, the point where money came into being. So the person uh, was uh, the King Gyges. I believe he was from Asia Minor. We're talking about uh, the 8th century before Christ. And what he did was take a piece of gold, create a uniform uh, weight and uh, and uh, assay for this gold, and then he would stamp his picture on it, the king. And the stamp, the, the picture of the king, guaranteed that what you got was what they said it was. That's what it was. And this was a huge step forward because you didn't have to go through all that rigorous uh, procedure. And uh, basically, that was money for about 2,000 years. Uh, that was it. So, uh, and so, go ahead. So coins became a kind of miniature proxy for the, the uh, unwieldy gold with all its uh, associated problems. That's right. That's right. And was the the sovereign stamped on uh, as a kind of icon in the money that seems to be the constant right the the idea of the the sovereign the head of state or the, or in the the king in this case in the first case is a kind of the uh, collective guarantor that this is worth what we collectively say it is because it has that's this, right the, literally that's right. think of it the we use this phrase right the stamp of approval right that's exactly what it is. And so what you have now is a situation where the sovereign is the only person who can issue money because he is the head of the state. That's what money is. It's a, it's a basic, well, it's, it, that's what it was then. We have a, a kind of primitive culture uh, that is a low on abstraction. Uh, and this satisfied that need. But basically, yes, you have to have the stamp of the sovereign on it. Otherwise, it's not money. And a sovereign is a kind of coin. It was known as a coin, what? yes. French, right? Yeah, uh, I forget which, Sorry. I forget which, mm -hmm. whatever one of those, one of those countries. I think it was England, but uh, I think it was England. Of course, there are, there are references to money in the Bible, uh, Old and New Testaments. Uh, our, our Lord takes the Caesar image, right? Regarding rendered to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's right. and to God, the, the things that are God's. I, I've noticed a lot of his parables involve money. Absolutely. Well, it's an important part of mm -hmm. human existence. It's a store of value. It's a medium of exchange. Uh, money makes the world go round, some people say. And that is precisely the problem. So first of all, you got, you got two problems here. The first problem is gold. Uh, and the second problem is uh, being a medium of exchange. These are contradictory elements. So I don't know. I don't know how much experience you have with gold, but I was in Iran, and um, this woman uh, I had met had just won an essay contest, and the prize for the essay contest was gold coins. I said, "Gold coins? You're kidding me! Can I see one?" And she put it in my hand, and I just wanted to close my hand and never let it go. It's like a golem with the ring. Okay, what was it about it? It was gold. Just the the, this, the sheen of it, the heft, the heft of it. What what you? I, I don't. I'm not sure. I, I'd have to go into psychoanalysis to figure out for sure. <laughs> but I think that uh, uh, basically it is. It's beautiful. It is condensed value. I think I think it was Marx who called it condensed labor, which I think is true. Uh, 
Mm. I think it's true. So, but the problem is, so it is valuable and it, and you can take it home and you can bury it in the backyard and nothing will happen to it. It doesn't rust or corrode. You know, it, uh, the only problem is someone else can dig it up and then you have nothing. But this is the problem. It's not a good medium of exchange mm -hmm. because no one ever wants to let it out of their possession. And so for the most part, I mean, let's say it's an ounce. What are you going to buy for an ounce of gold? A Coke? No. What do you, what do you think you would buy for an ounce of gold? A uh, custom-made suit, probably. Mm. I think that that has remained constant. It's one of the ways of judging the value of gold vis-a-vis -vis the value of currency. I, I think a custom-made suit would have cost you $20 in the 1920s, and it would cost you $2,000 now. But it's the same suit, and it's the same ounce of gold. Yeah. That, that shows you how powerful that piece of gold is. And so, therefore, you never want to let it go. And this, this was the fundamental problem with, first of all, gold, gold coins would never circulate. Never. No one would ever let a gold coin out of their possession. And so the banks kept them. But the banks didn't want to let them go either. Nobody wants to let go of gold. Watch uh, uh, gold drives you crazy. Watch uh, the treasure of the Sierra Madre for an example of exactly that. A very sophisticated movie when it comes to economics yeah. because it understands the power of gold and 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 it says at one point that gold is is congealed labor. I mean, that's that's sophisticated. You realize how much labor has to go into that to make that gold coin, an yeah, ounce of yeah. gold. Enormous amounts of labor. You wreck the entire environment to do this. Uh, uh, but that's, that's what it is and that's why it's valuable and that's why you don't want to let it go. So it's a bad... It's bad, bad, bad when it comes to money. It's not good money. So your opinion is kind of negative? <laughs> you mentioned Treasure of Sierra Madre. It's built right into the title, right? The Treasure of. Uh, economics and money is also at the heart of the movie I regard as the greatest film ever made, and that's It's a Wonderful Life. The trope of, of George Bailey hearing from from Mr. Potter, you're worth more dead than alive. It was like a, you know, eight thousand uh, dollar insurance policy. Uh, that would that made him go white white as a sheet. And of course, yeah. at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, what what is his salvation? His salvation is about the money, but it's not about the money. All the the widows' mites and all the people who pour forth. From their from their substance at the end when it, when it all ends up at, you know falling off the the card table there, money's a kind of symbol of of God's grace in a way, and that that the intercessory power of a woman named Mary on behalf of her husband is the is what effectuates that. That's the whole movie is about a, a prayer, it's, the prayers of a woman named Mary. So it's it's the about the money, but it's not about the money. It's about the people. Yeah, he was a man who a man of the people. If there were ever a man of the people, it was. Uh, what's his name? Frank Capra, a right. man of mm -hmm. the people uh, who made movies uh, for the people rather than for the oligarchs. So, yeah, you're right. And what is the, what do, what do the, what do the people have, which is important? They have labor. Yeah. And labor is the source of all value. That is a fundamental principle that very few people understand. Mm hmm. And we don't understand. Now, first of all, you go, oh, well, wait a minute. Karl Marx said that. Yeah, he did say that. Uh, and I can explain to you where he went wrong. But also, uh, Adam Smith said that. Was he a communist? No. Mm -hmm. John Locke said it. 
And Pope John Paul II said it in Laborum Exercens. So what these people have in common is that they can all recognize the truth. Okay, labor is the source of all value. Uh, well, wait a minute. Everybody, everybody stops at that point. Mm -hmm. And at this point, what what John Maynard Keynes said it becomes true. He said every politician uh, is mind is full of uh, bad concepts from some extinct economist. Mm. Uh, and that's true. And basically what we're talking about here is why don't people believe that? First of all, let me talk, let me talk about Marx. What did Marx, Marx said that that was true. And then he went on to just say, uh, therefore the price should be dependent on the amount of labor in the object. That's wrong. That is flat out wrong. It's flat out stupid and it's impossible to, to, to uh, advocate because uh, in order to get a price, you have to have a market. And in order to have a market, you have to have two individuals who can basically sit down together and barter, you know, come to some type of agreement. Okay, I'll pay you that. And that is the price of it. So if you have something, so like asking, well, what's the price of water? Well, the price of water is dependent on how thirsty you are. So if you're at a rock festival uh, in July uh, and there's somebody's got a bottle of water there, it's a lot more valuable than if you're sitting on the shore of Lake Michigan, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in February. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this this is part of the problem. And part of the problem here is, OK, that uh, how do we why do we think that there is another source of value? Why do why why do we rebel at this idea? I had this just had this long uh, internet email conversation with Bob Sengenis, very bright guy, uh, but he got stuck on the idea of money. We got stuck. I kept saying money is a thing. And he kept saying, well, money has power. He would say money has potency. I said, well, what do you mean? You mean money can do something? He says it has the potency to become something. I said, well, wait, an acorn has the potency to become an oak tree, but money doesn't have the potency to become anything. It's basically money. And that, that's ex the example I had is the cover of the book, basically, which is uh, uh, based on a quote from Aquinas. And Aquinas said, if you put uh, two coins in a drawer and come back six months later, you're going to have two coins. Uh, but if you put two mice in the drawer and you come back six weeks later, you're going to have a lot of mice. And this is proof of, of what Aristotle said, which is money is sterile. Well, for the most part, we do not believe that. For the most part, we are all Shylocks when it comes to money. And I'm talking about that passage in the uh, Merchant of Venice where Shylock says to Antonio, my ducats can copulate faster than Laban's use at Rams. This is mm. part of Shakespeare's brilliance. He goes right to the heart of a very serious matter there and makes it, puts it in dramatic form, referring to Aristotle's claim that money is sterile. So what is what is Shylock talking about there? What's and, he talking about? Ducats being coins. Coins. That's yeah. the coin of Venice. Mm -hmm. Yes. It was an ounce of gold. Sure. Like the, the florin was the ounce of gold in uh, Florence. So what's he talking about? How, how do his ducats copulate? The answer is usury. Answer is usury. Ducats cannot copulate. Only labor can produce value. But that's not what uh, the Jews think. 
That's certainly not what Shylock thinks. And that's why most of us don't think that way either, because we live in a culture that is dominated by Jewish thought and by usury. Dominated by usury. And we think that basically those ducats, if you leave and put them together, they will copulate and you'll get a return simply on money. How or at what point did money be so identified with, with the Jewish role in society in Europe? You spend many chapters going through some of the personages and, and trends. This is obviously not a medieval thing. It, it, it's in scripture, right? The, the concern for money and the, uh, the difference between faith in money and faith in God. You know, Jesus, right. Jesus right. contrasts God with mammon several times. Right, right, right. Well, the crisis came in the late Middle Ages. So the Middle Ages, you had a society where you had uh, serfdom as the norm. And basically, you worked on the Lord's farm and you owed him hours uh, a certain number of hours a week uh, added up over the year. That's how you paid off the fact that you used this land and got return on it, the land. Mm -hmm. Well, at a certain point, Europe started shifting to a money economy. And at this point, we're talking about uh, Florence. I begin with Florence, uh, let's say the 15th century, around that time, beginning of the 15th century. We're shifting to a money economy largely because the Medici are now involved in wool production. And wool production is taking place all across Europe. It is the beginning of the money economy, the production of wool. And the Medici have plant, uh, 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 plants, whatever you call them, in uh, selling textiles mm -hmm. in Brugge, in the Netherlands, and they have the headquarters in Florence. And in the Middle Ages, you had uh, knights, that were, uh, people with money would go to uh, oh, affairs, mm -hmm. okay, like champagne, and they bring bags of gold, and then you need knights to protect you, and then the knights have to do something, so they joust while you're making deals, and they, they discovered basically bookkeeping. Double-entry bookkeeping was discovered in Venice, and basically, you don't carry money back and forth, you just make entries now in different books. Uh, but the, the ordinary people now have to pay taxes, whereas before they had to pay labor, and this meant that they had to get money. Well, there was one source of money, basically, for poor people, and that was the Jew, uh, because he was allowed uh, to come into a kingdom and lend money. That's how he made a living. Uh, and so he would charge you 43 and a third percent interest. That was a good deal. Uh, and that's a very bad deal, by the way. Uh, right. So, so uh, that was it. That's where you went to get the money. Now, the point here is, if you were charging forty-three and a third percent interest, uh, you have a pretty big margin there, and so you can lure money uh, into your coffers by offering twenty to pay twenty percent interest. And basically, the elite—and I'm talking about the cardinals in the Catholic Church at this time—found this irresistible. They knew money was sinful, but hey, twenty percent on a return! Whoa! Right, uh, and right. so they they would give they would give their money to the Jew. The Jew would only get out of forty three and a third percent, and everybody's happy, right? Well, no, because the peasants are being ground into dust because that's way too much. That is use that is usury, and it's killing every it's killing the economy, and that was the big crisis. 
uh, in Florence, which was the most advanced uh, industrial cultural center in the world at that, certainly in Europe at that time. And yet usury is mentioned by name in the Old Testament. You think Exodus 22, uh, extracting uh, profit off of a loan is exploitation of the poor, which is one of the sins that cries out to heaven for vengeance. So there is, a, at least on paper, uh, a taboo against doing this. Right. The Torah is the word of God. And when the Jews rebelled against Christ, they needed a, a, a certain machinery to uh, spin the Torah. And that became the Talmud. And then it became Talmudic. And basically, you, you had a justification. Whatever the Torah forbids, the Talmud permits. And this was happening uh, at this time. And so, of course, they would allow it. Uh, and then the church, the church would, uh, the church, look, you've got cardinals taking, getting 20% interest. This is fallen human nature. Okay, but the church always held the line on usury, always. To this day, the church has held the line and said that usury is a sin. The, the final, the, the definitive teaching is Vix Pervainet. Benedict Fourteenth issued it in 1745. I had, uh, and he says basically taking interest on a loan is sinful. It's usury and any interest on a loan. By now, we had I had to clarify this with Bob Sergenis. When he says interest, he means compound interest. Because simple interest is the same as a fee, and that's not sinful. So if I if I charge you, look, I'm going to lend you uh, $1,000, but I want you to pay me uh, $1,100 back. That's okay. You're not going to go broke by paying back an eleven. But if you if you borrow a thousand dollars and that loan starts to float, by the time you reach uh, fifty years on a floating loan, sixty years, it's unrepayable. Okay, unrepayable makes sense. Let me go Occam's razor. Is it the amount above a thousand that makes it usurious and therefore wrong? Like let's say uh, I, you lend me a thousand, but you want me to pay you back eighteen hundred. And that becomes onerous for me because I thought I'd be able to pay you back the extra 800, but it turns out I can't, or at least not for a while. So when, when does the amount of that banking fee go from legitimate payment, uh, you know, workman's worth his keep, into sinful usury? Uh, we're talking about here now price, the just price. So if, I, if, you're, if you're in dire need and I have a, a flower uh, and you're starving to death, I, I cannot charge you whatever you would be willing to pay without committing sin. And the same thing would be true of a, a fee or compound interest. If you're in absolute dire need and I say, okay, the fee is, uh, you know, $10,000 for a $1,000 loan, that obviously that would be sinful. But that's, that's a price problem. It's not, a, a, not, not really a usury problem. Okay. Uh, it's it, because the problem is the nature of compound interest and the geometric nature of that, which makes it uh, over a period of time that so it, be, it begins like a, a geometrical curve. It's pretty, pretty OK. That's not bad. And then it just shoots up yeah. usually after 60 to 70 years. I'm going to try to find a floating on. There's a documentary about this called Maxed Out. If you want to be terrified by how this geometric uh, compound interest scheme works in the lives of young people when my when my folks were first getting started and and uh growing a family you had to meet some serious guidelines or, or criteria before they would give you this newfangled thing called a credit card now that the, the whole banking industry throws them at 17 year olds on college campuses right. with a pizza and a hat 
And by right. four years later, you're 200 grand in, and there's That's really right. no way out. There's no way you can do this except for some fancy loan forgiveness thing. But I want to ask you about usury in Catholic teaching. Uh, I remember when I when I was uh, first hearing about the dot connection that I think maybe you made in an interview about Dante and Dante putting sodomites and usurers in the same ring of hell. <clears throat> I consulted what used to be a kind of gold standard catechism. That's the one, the Catholic catechism by Father John Hardin, <clears throat> the uh, Jesuit servant of God. And I remember his treatment of usury is a, a kind of benign. So, uh, oh, the church used to think this because of the Old Testament and so on, the Torah. But over time, there's a modern understanding. There's a kind of uh, domesticated version of usury. Very, very few people are, cl are clear on this. Right. That's not fixed for vain. I mean, mm -hmm. much as I admire John Harden, this is not part of the magisterium. His, ca his catechism is not part of the magisterium. Uh, what Benedict said at this point is that, yes, it's always sinful, uh, but the modern financial instruments have become so complicated that I can't pronounce on all of them in an encyclical. So you're just going to have to go to the private forum and talk to your confessor and say, is this, a, is this, this is what I'm doing. Is that an instance of usury? It has not changed this church's teaching. Now, John, Father Hardin joins the unlikely company of Judge Noonan, John Noonan, the mm -hmm. great Notre Dame apologist who wrote a book on usury. <laughs> and admitted to people here uh, in South Bend during a talk he gave that the only reason he wrote a book on usury was to prove that the church had changed its teaching so that he could now write a book on contraception to follow up on that and say contraception was legitimate. That yeah. was his motive in writing that book on, on usury. The church has not changed. Look, do we have to do we have to explain that it's bad? Do we have to explain to a generation of uh, people who got uh, snookered into getting student loans for a crappy education out from which they cannot escape? They have paid and paid. People have paid uh, uh, payments faithfully for 10 years and are now deeper in debt at the right, end of right. 10 years than they were at the beginning. Do we have to say that that's sinful? I want to get into a really fascinating thing I, I mentioned earlier, and that is the, the dot connection between usury and sodomy. Because this is a really a kind of vivid contrast that Dante brings out. Uh, it, the, the two sterile coins, the barren metal of the title of your book, and usury versus starting with something fertile and making it sterile right. through, through sodomy. Right. That's what that connection to sterility. Mm -hmm. So the sodomite takes what is fruitful and makes it sterile, namely sex. And the user takes what is sterile, namely uh, money, and makes it fruitful. Or at least he thinks he does. That's the connection. And that's why they're both in the same circle in hell. Now, interestingly enough, uh, these are both signs uh, that your culture is about to implode as well. When sodomy and usury become commonplace and accepted, uh, you're not long for this world. And the place uh, where that was most apparent was Florence, which is why it's such a significant, uh, why I spend so much time on it in Baron Metal at the beginning of the book, because the man who came as the great savior of Florence was Savonarola. Mm -hmm. And he preached against sodomy and usury. And 
what happened is the sodomites and the usurers didn't like them, and they connived, and they uh, and eventually the Pope got involved. Alexander VI didn't like him either. He, he basically challenged the authority of the Pope. He welcomed the King of France, uh, an, an invasion into uh, Florence at that point, and hoped that basically the King of France would convoke a council and depose the Pope. Now, that's not going to make the Pope happy, but the Pope did connive, and they basically connived on his death. And he was, uh, basically, he was hanged, and then his body was uh, burned at the stake. Now, that was an act of mercy rather than just burning him while he was alive. Uh, but uh, people then people then knew, uh, they felt that he was a saint. And so the women would rush up afterwards and wanted to gather the ashes, and they were chased away, and his ashes were thrown into the Arno so that nobody had any relics of this man. Now, that was a tragedy. That was a great tragedy. The only reason uh, that... Uh, Savonarola is not a saint, is the Jesuits. Uh, and that's uh, because they take a special vow to the Pope. They've hated uh, Savonarola uh, for a long time now. Uh, but this is, this is tragic because the next time around, uh, it's not going to be a reformer. Actually, he's called a reformer, isn't he? The next time around is Luther. Mm -hmm. Okay, you didn't deal with the financial mess uh, in Italy, in the Papal States, you let the whole thing go along. You elected a Medici as the Pope, Pope Leo uh, X, who said he was going to enjoy the papacy, have a good time. When he heard about Luther, he said it was a quarrel among monks. And then the Reformation just exploded and destroyed the unity of Europe. And you could say that the cause was usury. Or let's say indulgences, but basically the Medici were the bankers. No, the Fuggers were the bankers at this point, and it was collecting money. And basically, the, uh, the lower aristocracy, like Ulrich von Hutten, who was a good friend of Luther and probably uh, one of those brilliant Latinists of his day, uh, were being supplanted by the new uh, merchant class, namely the Fuggers. And they didn't like it. Germany was being bled. The gold was bleeding out of Germany. And that was the fuel that started uh, the Reformation. So the Reformation is less about the sola, sola fide, sola scriptura, sola grace and all that, and more about a um, naked looting operation. I've always said it was a looting operation. Oh. I stand by that claim. Only in England? Germany too. The difference is, no, it was a looting operation no matter where it was because it was always the same deal. Basically, the, the aristocracy, at this point in time, the church owned enormous amounts of property and had enormous amounts of wealth. And if you listen to William Cobbett, all that wealth was put to the use of the people of those countries. Cobbett said you couldn't walk six miles in any direction in England before you found a place, a monastery, something like that, that would take you in for the night and feed you. And if you were sick, they would nurse you back to health. That was all the wealth of the monastery being put to the use of the people. And the uh, early aristocrats didn't like it. They were consumed with greed. And so the, uh, what, uh, the famous state, uh, statement by uh, Tawney, R.H. Tawney, who says the upstart aristocracy had their teeth in the carcass and they weren't going to be whipped off by a sermon. That is the 
Reformation in England. There was no theological justification whatsoever for the Reformation in England. Now, you had this guy, Luther, who was basically the, the, the captive of the upstart aristocracy in Germany, in the German principalities, and they held him prisoner, and uh, basically he added some type of theological justification to what was a looting operation. That's all it was, looting operation. Maybe there's some overlap between the barren metal premise and the premise of degenerate moderns in Henry VIII in England wanting to rationalize his own sexual misbehavior by wanting to continually dump his wives. And so that rationalization got painted onto a universal uh, canvas where he could have his cake and eat it too. Be the king and somehow be the, be the king of the church in England. Yeah, yeah, except that he was kind of a figurehead. Uh, and he he was he was he was so bloated. I mean, he, they had to use machinery to move this guy around. By the end of his life, he was he was so incapable of controlling whatever passion it was, whether it was lust or gluttony or whatever, uh, that he became uh, the figurehead that allowed the aristocracy to loot the country. If you want, if you want a good indication of what this what this was like from a man who was a really good observer, uh, listen to Timon of Athens by Shakespeare. So as soon as you know, as soon as it's set in Athens, as soon as you see that, you know they're talking about Elizabethan England, and we're talking about basically the next generation. All of these looters, uh, they got property. Okay, property is not money. And so what do you do when you have property and not money? Well, you go to the to the Jew, you go to the money lender, and he gives you a mortgage, and sooner or later, you lose everything. And so there was a, that's pretty much what Timon of Athens is about. That first generation of looters lost their money to the usurers, and they get, became wealthy, and they just, usury guarantees that your wealth will never, it will never die. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. What's the first magisterial, let's say papal encyclical to address economics? Well, the, the modern era began with uh, Rerum Novarum. Rerum Novarum, that was, Leo, that was, Leo the 13th, right? Leo the 13th, and that was 1893. And by this point, uh, you have, a, a, in many ways, a, a very different situation. Because this is the end of the 19th century, and the whole point of the 19th century was the Industrial Revolution. It just spread throughout all of Europe, and you had, now this is serious. This is real serious stuff, because you've got factories, this is labor. Now, the factory is simply a magnification of labor, an incredible magnification of labor, an unprecedented magnification of labor, labor of the sort that had never taken place in human history before that time. And that produced unprecedented wealth. But it also produced, it, it was a, a new technology at this point. Uh, and you need lots of workers to do this. The factory system needs lots of workers. Mm -hmm. And so like the new technology in our era was the internet. And so what uh, some people are always, they're going to come in, they want to take it over and use this big, great invention for the benefit of a few people. So same thing happened here. The capital capitalist what we call capitalist uh, took over and basically what 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 are we talking about here the, all of what i'm saying here the, the entire book baron metal is based on the economic thought of heinrich pesch one of the great probably the greatest economic thinker in the history of the catholic church a, a jesuit who is also a practicing catholic right <laughs> 
So, yes. so uh, what, what's the thumbnail summary of Pesha's contribution here? He returned economics back to moral philosophy, which is where Adam Smith abandoned that idea. And after Adam Smith, economics became pseudophysics, which is in many ways what it is today. Pseudophysics, uh, bad idea. And he returned it to philosophy. And when I read that, I have the copy of uh, Rupert Ederer's translation of the Leo, Das Lehrbuch der Nationalökonomie. It was five volumes in the original German. It is now 10 volumes in Rupert Ederer's translation. And you can buy this from Mellon Press for a mere $1,300 which means nobody, not even the Notre Dame library is going to spend $1,300 on this book. And so I thought, there's nothing, why did Rupert do this? He could have given it to me. I would have published it, but he didn't do it. And now it's, it's he's dead. It's over. And so I wrote Baron Metal because no one's ever going to buy this book. You, okay? Someone needs to make a TikTok video out of it. <laughs> so the, the, so th at this point, you've got the biggest problem in in Europe right now, and I'm talking about 1848. 1848, there's a revolution, and this is not about the Ancien Regime. Both uh, Engels and Bishop von Kettler agree the 1848 revolution is about capitalism and how the worker is being mistreated. What is the issue here? What is, how, does, what, how does labor produce value? Okay, you have a pound of flour, let's say. Mm -hmm. You add labor, you have to, okay, add water, flour, water, salt, yeast, whatever. You add labor to that mixture and it suddenly rises up and now you have dough. And then you put that dough, and so the flour had a certain value, dough doesn't really have any value, and then you put it in the oven, you bake bread. Now you've got an enormous increase of value here because basically you can take that bread and you can eat it right there. If you're hungry, you can eat it right there. Now, what does we call that? We call that surplus value. So what is capitalism, according to Pesh? Capitalism is, number one, state-sponsored usury. Number two, it's the systematic appropriation of all surplus value. So what happened here is you could charge, there are so many people out there, you've got this displaced peasant population. They are basically always at a disadvantage when they're lining up at your factory and you can charge, you can pay them nothing, next to nothing. Uh, they can't uh, support a family. They can't even support themselves. It's a starvation wage because there are so many people that the price of labor just keeps being driven down. And Bishop von Kettler who was in Mainz at that time, said, we can't go on this way. We cannot treat labor as if it's a commodity. This is human beings. This is the Catholic Church at work, understanding the dignity of the human beings and standing up to the capitalist of his day. So this his book comes out, The, uh, the, Ar the Arbeiterfrage und das Christentum, comes out the same year that Karl Marx's uh, Das Kapital. So we're talking mm -hmm. about the 1862, I believe. And at this point, you have two competing alternatives. And eventually, uh, by the 1870s, von Kettler meets with Bismarck. He starts off hating Catholics. The Kultur Kampf takes place. And he persuades uh, Bishop von Kettler, he persuades uh, uh, <laughs> Bismarck, 
that the real enemy are the commies and not the Catholics, and you need to take care of the workers. So Bismarck institutes social security and health insurance. And at that point, Germany turns around. Because before this time, why am I, why am I an American? Because my German ancestors couldn't make a decent living in Germany. They all came over here. The Irish came over because of the potato famine. Mm -hmm. So now you, the, Germany stops hemorrhaging workers. Well, guess what? Labor is the source of all value. They concentrated that labor. They, they organize it. They mobilize it. And within 20 years, Germany surpasses England, the premier power in the world, in every uh, measure of economic wealth, simply because of labor. And when did that, what are the decades of that German resurgence economically? 1871 to 1910. By 1910, Germany had surpassed England. And at that point, Bismarck was no longer there. They made a big, big mistake and started building battleships. Don't contest Britannia's rule of the waves. Mm -hmm. And at that point, Lord Grey and Winston Churchill lured Germany into a war. And you know the rest yeah, of what happened you, there. You know, when, when the lyric, uh, Britannia rules the waves, is embedded in the song, you should probably mm -hmm. leave it alone. Leave it yeah. alone. Yeah. Is uh, what we call now libertarianism, is that comparing it to your definition of from Pesh that capitalism is state-sponsored usury, is, is libertarianism a synonym for that? Because there's, I know a lot of traditional-minded Catholics and other conservatives who identify as uh, libertarians, that Murray, Murray Rothbard and, and uh, wrote The right. Road to Serfdom and so on. Right. Right. This is the great tragedy of American Catholic life. They've been ruined by conservatism so that they're alienated from their own tradition. And I can name villains here. One of the major villains in this regard is Father Robert Sirica, uh, former uh, who became famous as a homosexual activist on the West Coast and now is running something called the Acton Institute, whose job is basically taking oligarch money to subvert the church's teaching on economics. So he will end up in the New York Times saying, uh, rerum novarum no longer applies. Whoa, we got a priest from Michigan. A pope can't say that. This is part of the magisterium, and this priest from Michigan says rerum norm no longer applies. Mm -hmm. Well, what happened here is between this and, uh, you know, Michael Novak, all these guys who are dead now, they have totally corrupted the Catholic mind when it comes to understanding a just economic system because they all became de facto libertarians. I could name other names uh, as well. So, I mean, so if you want the historical context there, okay, we had uh, the bust, capitalism goes bust in 1929 and creates fascism. Very simple. Uh, Mussolini, Hitler, uh, Franco. This was the reaction to the collapse of capitalism. It's called corporatism. Uh, uh, Quadragesimo Anno came out at this point and basically said that socialism, uh, basically ca uh, capitalism gives birth to an evil uh, system and that evil system is called socialism. Mm. And socialism gives birth to an evil system and that's called Bolshevism. That's the position of Quadragesimo Anno. Gotcha. So for folks who may not have heard the name, it's uh, Father Robert Sirico, and he had this ministry, I guess, back in Seattle, 
and uh, was was known for for celebrating as a as a minister of the state the first so called gay marriage, which of course lo- long before it was uh, legalized. So he's he spent his life promoting either sodomy or usury. A lot of people. Let me me just finish that thought. So, so capitalism collapsed. We have the first reaction, which is basically corporatism, depending on what you want to call it. And then that leads to uh, basically a huge uh, state. The state becomes very large. Uh, So after the war, there's a very large state. And that's when libertarianism, the Austrian school road to serfdom, all these books come out, say the state is too big. And then you have the opposite reaction which is an attack on the state. And this is the rise of libertarianism. And this is the man most responsible. The era was uh, Ray, the Reagan-Thatcher era where we're going to dismantle the state. Now, the problem here, yeah, sure, the state, that was socialism. Socialism's not good. Socialism is the pus that forms in the body when it becomes sick from capitalism. Okay, it's not good. It was it wasn't a return to principle, uh, but now you have the reaction against socialism, and that's bad too, because the fundamental issue here that is now I think finally being redressed here is that the only thing that we uh, little people have to defend us against the wealth and power of the oligarchs is government. It's government. That's the only force on earth big enough to rein in these powerful people. Well, government, they're so powerful. What is the problem? They take over government because they have so much money, which is the situation we have right now. Right now. And the reaction is building, I think, places like Florida. This whole reaction against Roe versus Wade, I think, is the resurgence of representative government, the return of the repressed. And anarcho-capitalism is uh, libertarianism to the nth degree? Is that accurate? Yeah. Now, why? Now, th- let's go back to uh, Sirica. Uh, this was became libertarianism became very popular in San Francisco uh, during the seventies. Uh, Justin Raimondo, a homosexual in San Francisco at that time, uh, Father Sirica, homosexual in San Francisco at that time, uh, Michel Foucault another homosexual in San Francisco, and they all became libertarians. Michel Foucault would uh, do courses on libertarian economics. Now, what's the attraction here, other than the fact that sodomy and usury are both based on sterility? Uh, You don't want anyone telling you what to do. Yeah. This is not a sound principle. And now you you have uh, influential figures like Dave Rubin, who's about to, as we're taping this, um, acquire two children with his boyfriend that he calls his husband post Obergefell Hodges. Um, very libertarian. Libertarian is, it's almost like a, a, a way station for people who are leftists who got mugged by reality who don't want to identify as traditionalists or conservatives. So they, they have this safe harbor called libertarianism where they can, they can have no, no, no reason to filter their appetites. Right. That's exactly the attraction, and that's why the homosexuals all became libertarians. And then that goes on to more complicated permutations, and I'm currently working on a piece uh, about Michigan and uh, what happened in Michigan when, how do we end up having dope in Michigan? Uh, What's the connection between sexual liberation and dope in Michigan? And the answer is libertarianism, which basically became the unofficial philosophy of the state of Michigan, which is a tragedy. 
Is there a, a shorthand refutation of libertarianism if someone were, were to look for one? Have you ever covered it in Culture Wars, or is there a, a distilled... Uh, okay, so so I'm in uh, Tallinn in Estonia, mm -hmm. and Hans Hermann Hoppe. It is a nice place. Yeah, I, I enjoyed going there uh, at a conference, and Hans Hermann Hoppe shows up, and he's a, a libertarian. He probably will, uh, and he says, "We don't need government. Okay, mm -hmm. all we need are insurance companies." Now, this is widespread among. Libertarians. So the, the Estonians are now the Estonians are just fresh from being liberated from communism at this point, and they are totally sympathetic to anything that comes from the West, no matter how crazy. And so one of the guys at the the back of the room says, well, "Wait, I have a question. What if the insurance company won't pay?" <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, what what what? Uh, Herr Hoppe really was saying was the insurance companies, the government, <laughs> because if you are the court of last appeal, you're the government. And so what yeah. he's saying is, well, what we want is basically capitalists, recruit a capitalist corporation will be your government and you can't elect anybody because it's a privately owned corporation. Well, that's the world we have right now. What the hell do you think Google is? We're ruled by private corporations, and and the government doesn't apply. We don't have any rights. You know, we, we have a First Amendment if it's the government, but you don't have any rights when it comes to these private corporations like Google. They can cut you off. They can, they can cut your throat economically, and you just have to take it. That's the world of libertarianism. I don't know whether you need anything more, but that's certainly the fulfillment of what Hoppe was talking about. Well, we could hit rewind to 2015 and what happened to your state of Indiana under then Governor Mike Pence with the um, uh, Pence's, to me, very common sense pushback against the forces that would want to require bakers, uh, uh, photographers to... Um, do you know say gay marriage events uh since the presumably the, the voters of indiana passed this law through due process and the democratic system you have there in indiana and uh who parachutes in from the west coast the corporatists right to overturn it right right mark benioff mm -hmm. do you know did you did you see the interview uh between uh tucker carlson and ron DeSantis, the governor of florida did you see that interview uh i don't think so recent Okay, I, yeah, it was recent. But anyway, I'm listening to Ron DeSantis, and you know what? He sounds a lot like E. Michael Jones. I hate to say this, but he's saying about Florida exactly what I said about Indiana. He's saying things like, wait a minute, who gave these people in Burbank yeah. the right to make laws for the state of Florida? That's exactly what I said Mike Pence should have said to Mark Benioff when he showed up here. So the, the word is spreading here, and I think we're seeing basically the resurrection of representative government. And he's taking on this unelected oligarchy, uh, Disney, Disney, right? Uh, the propaganda ministry who is now going to say, we're not following the laws of Florida. We're going to promote homosexuality. Well, that's not going to work because we have finally have a governor who understands what government is. They had, a, they had a deal, believe it or not, where they collected taxes. Disney World collects its own taxes. Well, you're the government then. Yeah, you are the government. Yeah, by They definition. were the government. 
Well, that happens. Well, they're not doing it anymore. Oi, oi, Michael, oi, Moisha, we made a mistake. Go back on the, uh, we won't, we won't do it. Well, it's too late now. They overplayed their hand. Again. Yeah. And Again. The, the parental notification uh, law in Florida, which is tagged and shamed as the uh, don't say gay, right? All it did was prevent the homosexualization of children up to the third grade. It's still fair game after the fourth grade. And yet the, no, it, the cage was so rattled and so much noise was made. And the the house that Walt Disney built tried to storm in and, and overtake it all. And, and now, did you see the the staff meetings that were re, uh, released? I did. I did. Yeah, I, I mean, did. It's just I did see it. Stunning what they're if, bragging so about. If you're, if you're interested in the, the deep story here, uh, the cover story on June issue of Culture Wars is Walt Disney and the Jews. And the fact that he was always perceived as an alien body in a totally Jewish operation and how they tried to destroy him from the moment he got there uh, and eventually did take over with the arrival of people like Michael Eisner and, and what it is today. And this is also a 30, 33rd degree Mason. Disney's a complicated guy, too. You're, we're talking about uh, an America that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Like small town um, Missouri, I think it's Marcellus, Missouri, where he grew up, which is basically what you walk through when you walk into Disney World. Five eighths the size of a normal building. It gives you a sense of being at home. He had a vision. I, 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 you could, I'm sure uh, he was an American. He was an Americanist. His religion was America. And he did a great job in promoting his vision of a wholesome America, whether it was a Freemason or not. Freemasonry by this point in Hollywood was an obsolete revolutionary movement anyway. Read the chapter on Freemasonry and Jewish revolutionary spirit, uh, and you'll see, understand what I'm talking about. Can we, um, I, I want to get to John Paul II and his definition of capitalism, if you mean this, if you mean that. But I wanted to ask you about the Federal Reserve and the impact of World War One on economics around the world, and how uh, I'm, I'm thinking of mm-hmm. of the book by um, G. Edward Griffin called "The Creature from Jekyll Island." He has a chart that compares the price of a sandwich in 1605 to the price of a sandwich in 1910. It's basically the same price, just decades right. and decades, and then all of a sudden. The Federal Reserve is uh, is concocted in secret on Jekyll Island, and then you have this shadow financial cabal that's the engine of the economy, quite separate from elected representatives. And then this, the price of, of sandwiches skyrockets. So how did how did the, right. the the introduction and the imposition of the Federal Reserve? Why was that such a huge game changer? Well, uh, it happened after J.P. Morgan died. So J.P. Morgan had so much power that if there was a run on the bank, he could basically mobilize enough of the people in on Wall Street to backstop the bank uh, and stop the run. You needed this because there was no there was no uh, central bank at that point in America. Mm-hmm. We had one, and uh, Andrew Jackson destroyed it. Uh, he was like the classic broken clock, who kind of uh, was half right, right twice a day. 
Uh, but we hadn't had one since that time. So there was no ultimate financial power that could backstop uh, the hemorrhaging during a run on the bank. So when J.P. Morgan died, these people that you mentioned got together on Jekyll Island and they came up with the Federal Reserve System because to deliberately disguise the fact that it was a central bank. They didn't they knew that there was that history of that. Now, why did why did they do that? Oh, well, to, you know, as I said, they don't want uh, there has to be some type of financial power that can stop this guarantee the money. It did that. But there was something else. If you go back to, I think it was 1910, and you go to the Midwest, uh, it turns out that 90% of all capital improvement is made through profits. That means you didn't borrow any money to create that new, buy that new machine. Mm -hmm. Well, Wall Street didn't like this. And they wanted to get involved in lending money, which is what they do. And so they created a situation where money is debt. This is always the problem with the, the first bank, the first real central bank was the Bank of England, and it was created basically to give King Billy uh, money to wage war against the French. Uh, and it was basically the Whig oligarchs who put their money together. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton was one of them. Uh, and uh, they owned the bank. So now you have this great deal, if you can swing it, you've got a private enterprise that now can collect taxes. Well, that's it doesn't get much better than that, except that it wrecks the entire economy because you can never, ever keep up with compound interest. So the basic the Bank of England is formed in 1692, I believe. 1760, Lord Townsend notes, notices uh, we're having trouble making our debt payments. He goes to uh, Adam Smith, what should we do? The trouble is you have a floating loan for 70 years and you can't have that. It's kicking in. Nothing can pay this back. Smith, who you think would be smart enough to understand what's going on, said, I know, we'll have the colonies pay for it. And they institute the Stamp Act and that leads to the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, how, that's how usury plays out in the real world. It leads to revolution and war. Because nobody can pay it back. And if you think you're going to impose it on me, you're not going to. It's not going to work. This reminds me of the book War is a Racket by Smedington Butler, one of the highest decorated Marines in history. Right. He's a major general. Uh, he, he believed at the end, after, after some people uh, tried to recruit him to become the fascist dictator of America in, in the 1930s, he wrote this book. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to all the stuff that we're talking about here with uh, E. Michael Jones on the Patrick Coffin Show. The link is patrickcoffin.media. That um, he says people who have to go to war should be the ones voting on whether or not we should go to war. Absolutely. Because so Absolutely. you've got uh, millionaires in the House of Representatives that are, are uh, very often chicken hawks who have no problem having other people spill their blood, have their minds broken forever. Um, uh, let's let's name a few chicken hawks. George Weigel is now thumping his chest about the war in the Ukraine. Uh, wait a minute, George. They're asking for volunteers. Don't just talk the talk. Walk the walk. Fly over there. Join the Nazis in the Azov Brigade. Well, no, he's not going to do that. If there were ever proof that war is a racket, it is the war in the Ukraine right now. The Congress just passed $40 billion worth. Of, he called it Lend-Lease. Oh, that doesn't sound good. Yeah. Uh, that last lend lease led us into a war uh, that was very, very destructive. Okay, now uh, uh, we are, this is lend lease just passed. 
in time to have the uh, the Nazis surrender uh, from the Azovstal plant in Mariupol. They're all walking out. They're, they're calling it an evacuation. No, it's a surrender. They lost. Okay, so where are these weapons going to go? Who's going to use them? The army is being decimated. Who's going to fire these weapons? Well, probably no one. And probably what's going to happen is what has already happened, which is basically the Russians have total control of the air. They have imposed a no-fly zone basically on Ukraine. And so there it is. There's the truck uh, coming across the border from Poland. Up, oh, let's watch where it goes. Goes to the warehouse. And then the next thing you know, one of those missiles comes down and destroys oh, about a $2 billion worth of uh, weapons. This is a windfall for the military-industrial complex. It means that innocent people are going to die, and it's absolutely shameful. And the most shameful part about it is, is you can have one of these neocon chicken hawks, who, Catholic chicken hawks like George Weigel, claiming that there's some type of justice in this cause. This is outrageous. And just to give you some indication of where the consciousness is now, Crisis Magazine, which was created for people like George Weigel, has denounced him and mm -hmm. his warmongering. And Biden's administration uh, authorized $40 billion with a B to go there. Uh, they could give me a million and still have... How many? 30, this 39 is outrageous. Billion. This is going to contribute to the already big inflation that we have. Innocent people are going to die and they're probably all going to get blown up anyway. I mean, yeah. the, I'm talking about the weapons. Did you watch former president George W. Bush make, ah, make the gaffe? <laughs> you can't, it, it's, you <laughs> can't rehearse that kind of beauty. Why don't you, since you're familiar, what happened there? Well, I, He's in his dotage and he's talking about how bad Putin is because he invaded a sovereign country and innocent women and children are dying. And he said, and this is all happening in Iraq. It was an unjustified oh, attack on Iraq. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, uh, Dr. Freud. Dr. Freud, you slipped. Let me help you out. If there were ever Freudian slip, if there were ever an indication that uh, George Bush has a guilty conscience, it was this Freudian slip. All right, let's turn to John Paul II and the concept of uh, family wage. Uh, this, is, this concept of, of the family wage makes uh, Catholics of the libertarian persuasion, uh, they, they react like shocked monkeys because they think it's, it's uh, unjust government control. What did John Paul II um, condemn when he condemned capitalism or, or support capitalism, depending on what he meant? Well, you're talking about centesimus honest mm -hmm. now, and you're talking about uh, Michael Novak immediately claims that I'm responsible. I had candlelight dinners with uh, the Pope, and now he's endorsed capitalism. No, it's not that at all. It says if by capitalism mm -hmm. you mean, you know, uh, free or whatever, you know, an ownership of property, something like that, then it's consistent with Catholic teaching. If, however, you mean that markets should not operate with any uh, uh, connection to morality or anything like that, no, it's not compatible. So libertarianism is not compatible, and capitalism as we know it today is not compatible. It's not, it's not compatible. So they failed the test. So Centesimus Honest was never an un- Un, uh, unmitigated, unmixed uh, endorsement. It was always conditional. Uh, the year Chinchissimus Annas came out, 80s? 
No, it would have been 1993. 93. Okay, very good. I'll put that link in there as well. Uh, May 1st, 1991. Got it. 91, sorry. Um, do you think that the rise of cryptocurrency through um, entities like Bitcoin are the, does that mean we're, we're saved or screwed? What do you think the, what's going to happen next? So what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is a tulip bulb. Do, mm -hmm. do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? Not an emoji. The, okay. The tulip, there was a tulip bubble uh, in France, France and Holland. Uh, I think it was in the 18th century where basically everybody, these were the greatest flowers. I love these flowers. I'm going to buy. And suddenly everybody's buying tulip bulbs. And when everybody starts buying them, the price goes up. And suddenly you could invest, you buy tulip bulbs uh, today, and two weeks later you make a uh, hundred percent profit on, on your investment. And everybody's doing this until finally we realize, wait a minute, it's a tulip bulb, and then the bubble bursts. That's by es the essence of what a bubble is. So what you have here is a bubble. It's basically people now they're they're claiming that uh, Bitcoin, to give you one example, is connected to all these blockchain whatever. It doesn't matter. You don't have to connect it. That's it to, uh, simply to limit the supply, so that you're getting uh, something a limited supply of something. But it doesn't matter. It, it could be anything, anything. If people if people put their money into it. Uh, it will drive the price up. And if you drive the price up, you can tell, time the difference between you when you buy it to when you sell it, and you will make money as long as the bubble keeps expanding. It's not money. It's not money. I don't know why people think that this is money. Money is has to have the picture of the sovereign on it because money is created by the state. If the state doesn't create it, it's not money. So I'm in India, and I want to go swimming. And I walk up to the, 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 the gate, and the lady says to me, you have to buy a credit card to go swimming. Mm -hmm. I said, honey, this is money. And the reason this is money is because you have to accept it. That's what money is. I'm not going to buy your stupid credit card. You are going to take this because it's money. And of course, she had to back down because it was money. That's what money is. It is mandatory. You can pay uh, taxes and debts with money, and they have to accept it. You can't do that with Bitcoin. You can't do that with any of these things. And so people are engaging in speculation. I'll buy it at X. It will rise to this. I, I'll get out of the market just before, uh, and then I'll make money. First of all, that's not a good way to make money because there's really the best way to make money is to create something of value. And this is not that this is called speculation. So it's not money. How is Marie Rothbard and Milton Friedman considered the kind of mavens governing many young conservatives see them as kind of godfathers of this unlimited acquisition of wealth without any state controls. You, you mentioned both in your book. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Murray, um, Murray Friedman won the Nobel Prize in 1976, and he came along just as we were getting tired of the uh, big government that had grown up after World War II. No, Milton, so we kind of, Milton Friedman. No, I'm sorry, yeah. Milton Friedman, yeah. 
Uh, and so he rode that wave, and basically everyone thought it was a good idea, and that's what Reagan and Thatcher were. We're going to, you know, privatize. Uh, Murray Rothbart was, he's Austrian school. Milton Friedman is not Austrian school. Uh, I, apparently, I know people who knew Murray Rothbart, and he was apparently a charming guy uh, to be around. But I read his book on money, and if there's ever uh, Shylockian economics, it is what Murray Rothbard is proposing in his book. He, there's actu an actual line in his book. First of all, Murray Rothbard thinks, I think I have this right, uh, thinks you should have private money. Shows that he doesn't know what he's talking about. There's no such thing as private money. Yeah, what would private money be? Something you can give to well, your, your hairdresser or your barber, but not... Well, if, uh, Bitcoin, I guess what he's talking about, this is before it was ever invented. But, you know, I'm coming along saying, this is money? No, it isn't. <laughs> I don't have to take that. And if I don't have to take it, it's not money. So, but, but there's a line, actual line in um, his book. I think it's called Money. I mean, I read it when I did uh, uh, Barren Metal. And he says, my ducats swell during periods of deflation. <laughs> Well, ducats, what do you think he's talking about? He's Shylock. Right. Yeah. This is exactly what Shylock was talking about. What are you talking about? You're talking about the fact that if you have gold during a period of deflation, you're going to be in a great position. Well, nobody's denying that. But the problem is that everyone else is going to be miserable. So who's, who are we talking about here? Who was Shylock? He's talking about Jewish economics and people who rich Jews will profit uh, at the expense of everyone else because they will contract the economy in a period of deflation and they have the gold. Well, this is not anything Catholics should be involved in, uh, much less praising. I mean, just, get, just to give you an example of that, gold is bad idea. I've already talked about why it's a bad idea for money. It's also a bad idea for uh, limiting the money supply because there's never enough gold to take account of human productivity. So to give an example, the United States went on gold, the gold standard after World War, uh, after the Civil War to cash in basically on the, the settlement after the Franco-Prussian War. Okay, so after the Civil War, a bushel of grain sold for two dollars. By eighteen, by the eighteen nineties, grain was selling for fifty cents a bushel. Now, how are you going to make? There are only twenty four hours a day if you're a farmer, and if you're not a farmer, there's only twenty four hours a day. Uh, how are you supposed to make money now when you're only earning a quarter of what you did? And to make it worse, to make it worse. The debt that you incurred back then to keep the farm going is the is the debt based on that expanded currency, and you you're you're trying to pay back that with a deflated currency. That's ruined. That's what created the state of Texas. Basically, all of these people were sharecroppers uh, down in the South. They all lost the farm to the furnishing merchants who were all Jews from New York City, like the Solomon brothers. And they went to Texas because the land was still there. And they created the strictest usury laws in the union because of their bad experience like that. That's the type of thing that Murray Rothbard is praising. This is outrageous. My friend Timothy Gordon has a new book on, uh, I think it's co-written co by... Uh Michelle Robillard, I believe. Um, Michael. Anyway, it's called "Don't Go to College." What? What? You? What is your fatherly slash grandfatherly advice to young people who have 
the opportunity to start a business and start making money and providing value for their communities versus diving into a four-year track to usurious debt load. Do you, do you talk about this entrepreneurial spirit that I'm seeing more and more in young people that are that are turning their their uh, shoulder away from college toward a business that's going from zero to one? Look, I think it costs between $250,000 and $300,000 to get a four-year bachelor's degree from Notre Dame now. That's yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, That's a lot of money. And it seems to me it would be better if you invested that money in some type of operation where labor could produce value. It's a, just a better investment. And you add to the fact that you get a really crappy education at a place like Notre Dame. And uh, that's the rule and not the exception. So at the same, you've you, you got this deal where basically uh, the higher the price, the crappier the education. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. That, it just doesn't make sense. That reminds me of a comedian making fun of Starbucks in a stand-up act. I forget who it was. He said, okay, fine. The lineups at Starbucks are really long. But hey, the coffee is really expensive and it tastes like crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. I think we solved several problems of the world. The book is called Barren Metal, A History of Capitalism as the Conflict Between Labor and Usury. My guest today is Dr. E. Michael Jones, culturewars.com. Do what I do. Get the monthly magazine. How many per year? 12, 10, 13? How many episodes? 11. 11. Okay. 11 per year. We have a combined July or uh, July, August issue. And uh, uh, the next issue is uh, the story of Disney, uh, Disney, Disney and the Jews. Uh, yeah, good idea. Because there's only so much you can do when you're talking and the real depth of the story comes from reading. You can't be, uh, you can't be a really intelligent, liberated person unless you read. Much as uh, the, the internet is a great way of uh, fostering conversations. You really have to get down into the bushes and start reading the book and look at the sources and so on and so forth. Books. Huge fan of books. Speaking of books, uh, did I hear, did a little bird tell me you're, you're working on a book on, on uh, pulchritude and beauty? Yes, I'm not working on it. It's at the printer. Oh, okay, good. Uh, so if you have a prayer intention, please pray that the printer solves this computer problem because I just got a notice that there's two-week delay. But uh, as soon as we get the book, uh, we will announce it on uh, Culture Wars. I will send you a copy, and I'd be happy to talk to you about it. And I will it. read it first. And remember that a thousandth of a picture is worth a word. <laughs> you, Michael Jones, thanks again. God bless you. Thank you, Patrick. All right. This is the Patrick Coffin Show. Be a saint. What else is there?